0: Thank you, Roger, for giving me the opportunity to present work on solubilized BCMA, which we started working on, believe it or not, eight years ago. I also want to thank Mort and Ruben for inviting me to today. I always have a great time in New York, as does my wife, who likes the theater very much. So today I'm going to be talking about the role of serum B cell maturation, or BCMA, in predicting outcomes and monitoring patients with myeloma and chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So with myeloma, we know that the standard tests for monitoring these patients are, for the intact immunoglobulin present in most patients, uses the serum protein electrophoresis, and since there's an excess of free light chains, at least in many patients, we can measure that as well. And in light chain myeloma, we try to do the 24-hour urine along with the collection of the urine, we measure the monoclonal protein with electrophoretic techniques, and again, the serum-free light chain, as well in light chain disease. But we know that there are limitations to these tests. We've heard a little bit about that from Angela earlier. The SPEP, as you know, we have our own machine, and there's a very subjective determination of the M protein. So from actually the laboratory personnel from One to another may get different results on the same sample. We know that quantitative immunoglobulins, the reagents vary from month to month. You may get different levels. And with the serum-free light chain, we know that it can be quite unreliable. You can have marked variability. We've seen that even day to day in measurements. And you cannot assess accurately in renal failure. It's very difficult to know in many patients what to do there. Do you actually measure the involved, the difference between the involved and the uninvolved, the ratio? This can be problematic. And, of course, the urine can be a problem. We've had urine uh, spilled in the elevator, in the clinic, in the bathroom, and a lot of it, I'm sure, the patient's house. So the 24-hour urine collection isn't really a 24-hour urine collection at all. And again, the same limitation with electrophoresis I mentioned in the blood is present in the urine. And then the BOLD is a big problem, the half-life of the monoclonal antibody is many weeks. It turns over very slowly, so it's if you're looking at the light of the sun in the next galaxy instead of the light from our sun. We are getting a read on something that happened many weeks ago in the patient's myeloma clone with that marker. So we know that the B-cell maturation antigen, a late B-cell marker, we have shown is solubilized and present in the blood of patients. Normally it's present because we all have plasma cells. It's a late B-cell marker. It's cleaved by gamma secretase, and indeed there are a number of inhibitors that are now being tried in the clinic to keep the BCMA on the tumor cell, making it a better target for BCMA-directed therapy. We've shown over the last few years that in late B-cell disorders and malignancies, the level is elevated, including myeloma, CLL, Waldenstrom's, amyloid, and other diseases as well. We've also just published data in collaboration with a group at Mount Sinai that the levels, indeed, are extremely low in patients with primary immune deficiencies, those patients with combined variable immune deficiencies, as well as patients with X-linked A-gamma globulinemia. Now, in bold, importantly, we have shown that this analyte has a very short half-life, one day, not three or four weeks. So, it allows much more rapid determination of changes in clinical status of our patients than what we have now with m protein. It only takes four lambda to run the test, and importantly, even though in the patients it's turning over, on the benchtop it's stable, not for days, but for months. So, it's very convenient to obtain it and to ship it. So, we published data a couple of years ago on age matched controls versus MGUS versus smolders and active myeloma, showing a markup from 38, the median in normals, to about 53 in MGUS, to 85 in smolders, to much higher at 522 in patients with active disease, and those differences are significant between all those groups. But importantly, if you tease out the myeloma patients, based on the BCMA, when they start treatment on the left-hand side, the progression-free survival is markedly different. If their levels are below the median, their progression-free survival median is at nine months, whereas if it's over the median, it's only about three and a half months. Similarly, if you look at overall survival on the right-hand side of the slide, the median overall survival is markedly different. If it's below the median, it's 155 months, and at 98 months above the median. Importantly, now we have, I believe, a new analyte for patients with non-secretory disease. So we can use this analyze to track these patients now, and it's easily done as demonstrated in these two cases, both of which I've seen in the last few days. These patients are much further out, but they can be tracked easily with BCMA now in the blood rather than having to rely on bone marrow and PET scans and costly and invasive techniques, as we know. So, there's a nice correlation between bone marrow findings, PET findings, and changes in BCMA in non secretory patients. So, we looked at a series of 122 patients in our clinic who were relapse refractory, and we wanted to see whether serum BCMA would be valuable in more of them than free light or M protein, and if so, could it give us an earlier read on progression than the conventional biomarkers. So, again, because of the more rapid half-life, we expected to get a more rapid read on progression. We determined the proportion of patients that were assessable by BCMA, M-protein, and serum-free light chain, the latter two based on IMWG criteria, and then we measured those three analytes at baseline, weekly during the first month of new therapy, and also on day one of the second cycle. And what we see here is that only about a third of patients in relapse have M proteins that are valuable. And then if you look at the remaining patients, which is what you do by IMWG criteria, only about two thirds are valuable by serum free light chain. Meaning that 21% of these patients are not available by conventional IMWG criteria and cannot be followed by either of those biomarkers. And yet in the bottom of the circle, all 122 have levels of BCMA that are valuable, 16 milligrams per milliliter or higher. Now importantly, if you look at then the number of patients who have a rise in BCMA, M protein or serum free light chain during the first month of therapy, you'll note that only five patients had a rise in their M protein during the first month. Only 13 of those 77 patients that we tested for serum-free light chain did, and yet 31 patients had a rise in BCMA during that first month. Now, did that mean anything clinically? Indeed it did. The next slide shows you that. So if you look at the PFS among patients who had a 25% or greater rise, those 31 patients, compared to the other 91, you can see there's a marked difference in PFS, 1.64 months in those who had more than a 25% rise, in about five and a half months, and those patients did did not. Showing that this analyte is giving us an early ride of what's gonna happen to that patient in terms of PFS. So what does that look like clinically in a patient? Well, this is one example, a patient who was on exazimid, vitamin C, cytoxan, and dex. In the first week, you can see in the blue diamond, there was a 40% rise in that patient's serum BCMA, and yet the M protein did not move. At three weeks, this patient had progressed with hypercalcemia, azotemia, mark rise, and urinary proteinuria, And yet, we waited. We waited too long. This patient was unstable at that point, unable to be treated. So we believe this early rise and early read with serum BCMA will help instruct doctors to be able to change therapies before patients are compromised and can't take therapy. So what does that look like in a larger group? So if you look at these 122 patients and you compare the progression by M protein, free light and BCMA, you'll know we're much faster. So serum BCMA shows progression in just 48 days where it's 113 and 120 days for serum free light chain and M protein respectively. We're getting an earlier read on progression here. We also want to determine what was normal range, and you'll see why in a moment. So we've taken, actually, age match controls, largely spouses, spouses significant others, or friends of our patients. We've done this in about 200, and we know the median, again, is about 37.6, but if you do two standard deviations above that to determine your normal upper limit threshold, it's about 82. So anything less than 82, we considered normal. So we wanted to see if patients who normalize, who did not start out normal, did that actually predict outcomes, both PFS and OS. So we've done that on 460 patients, 460 treatments among about 200 patients. And what you note on the left-hand side, these are patients both in frontline through 19th line of therapy. Median number of lines was five. There's a dramatic difference. Those patients who achieved a BCMA of normal range less than 82.69 had actually a 22-month PFS. It's one-tenth that at two months if you didn't. And the right-hand side represents survival. Again, a dramatic difference. About In this whole cohort, it turns out about a third of these patients are normalizing. This includes both relapse and frontline. The majority of patients are actually obviously in relapse. So is this actually agnostic to treatment? It is indeed. So these patients are divided by whether they were on PIs, immunomodulatory agents, both antibodies or alkylators. In all of these subgroups, the normalization of BCMA predicts a much better, on the left hand side, PFS, than if you don't normalize, and on the right-hand side, overall survival. So it appears to be agnostic to treatment. We also looked at salvage patients themselves, and again, in these salvage patients, representing about 370 different treatments, dramatic differences in PFS on the left, and overall survival on the right. We also see that in Frontline as well. Also importantly, we can tease out differences among patients in different categories of response. So if you take PR patients here, those patients on the left-hand side who normalize their BCMA have markedly longer PFS than those who don't, despite they all are in PR. And the right-hand side, you even show an overall survival difference. So we can tease out differences even among different response categories by whether, indeed, patients normalize their BCMA level. Now, provocatively, if you look at normalization among the CR patients, what you see here is that every patient who normalized BCMA, I should say, every patient who achieved a CR normalized BCMA. But among those who did not achieve a CR but normalized the 36, there's no difference here. Admittedly, this is not MRD negativity. This is conventional CR. But there's no difference in outcomes. So what I'm telling you is among our CR patients, if you, if you don't or do achieve ACR, but you normalize your BCMA, you do just as well. And obviously in the bottom curve is you did not normalize, you do worse. We also in collaboration with Angela Dispenzeri, who just presented at the meeting, have looked at whether this can predict who with MGUS is going to get myeloma, and pay attention to the yellow line. So if you look at patients who say that AMGUS, or median BCMA, was but 42 months. It was 96 months. And those patients did not, who, those patients who did transform to myeloma. And what you notice, there's actually a threshold, 28.8. So nobody who had a BCMA below 28.8 in this pilot study actually went on to myeloma. And on the right-hand side, you can see smolderings who went to myeloma. The numbers were 175. This actually not only predicted for the patient's uh, actually transformation, but you can see on the right hand side, it actually predicted overall survival. So indeed, BCMA levels at baseline predicted not only progression to myeloma, but overall survival as well. We've also looked at smoldering myeloma, and this is work from her group. We show, I'll show you work from our group as well. And you look at the yellow on the right-hand side, the median levels of those who say smoldering was only 180. Those who transformed to myeloma was nearly three times higher. And again, we have similar data in our own group. Left-hand side, those who transformed, from smoldering to active right-hand side, those that did not. And you can see highly significant differences. Again, the baseline numbers seem to predict not only who with MGUS gets to go to myeloma, but who with smoldering does as well. So in myeloma, we've shown that serum BCMA is elevated. Baseline levels predict PFS and OS. We can track non secretories. We believe more patients are valuable. And because it turns over so, more rap- so much more rapidly than M protein and free light, we get an early read on progression. And it predicts who with MGUS is going to get myeloma and who among the smolders will go on. We've gone on to look at CLL. We just published this data last week in a large study with the consortium group, with the health. Both Tom Kipps and Laura Roseney at UCSD, 171 patients. We looked at baseline BCMA and correlated with aggressive versus indolent, based on ZAP70 and the IGVH mutational status. We also looked at time to first treatment, overall survival, and changes in individual patients' response to treatment. And what you note immediately is the levels are actually lower in CLL, which makes a lot of sense. It's a little bit earlier in B cell lineage. And there's a lot more patients here, if you will, are kind of smoldering. But the numbers are double of normals, and indeed quite significantly different than normals. And you can tease out indolent versus aggressive, The numbers in those with indolent are about half at 42 of those that were considered active based on ZAP70 and IgHV expression. And it also predicts for initial treatment for CLL. On the left-hand side, those who never required treatment had levels at only 40. It was about 74 in those who did. The right-hand side cutting it at the median, which was 56. If you were above 56, you only went one year before treatment. Whereas if you were below 56, seven years, markedly different prediction for time to first treatment. And then if you look at the highest quartile, the high risk, if you will, which cuts at 110, you'll note on the left-hand side a dramatic difference. Again, patients above 110 had only eight months for time to first treatment, 45 if you were below, and the right-hand side, the quartile data shows difference in overall survival. We've also looked at individual patients. Admittedly, this series is really anecdotal. I'll show you data on Ibrutinib in a minute. But again, it does correlate with changes in disease burden. The left-hand side showing a progressive patient with rises in BCMA. The right-hand side showing a patient going into complete remission with a dramatic drop in BCMA. And among those 20, which are published in this much bigger font in the uh, publication, in 19 out of 20, there was complete concordance between rises or drops in BCMA and the IWCLL response criteria, the one exception, that patient actually progressed rapidly uh, within nine months after the PCMA went up. So it was an early read. We've also gone on to do a study which we presented recently at ASCO. We're sending in for publication soon with Mayo Clinic on 331 patients looking to correlate The baseline serum BCMA with time to first treatment, overall survival, and just to cut to the chase, but I'll show you the data in a second, BCMA is elevated and adjust, after adjusting for CLL, IPI, and sex, the serum BCMA provides an independent prognostic value in predicting time to first treatment and overall survival in the cohort. Let me mention here, which, which I forgot in the earlier slide, that the plasma levels measured in the Kipps-Rosetti study we've shown in our own clinic, the plasma and serum give identical levels, there's no difference. So if you look at 41 in this study as the optimal cutoff, on the left hand side looks at time to first treatment, and you can see dramatic differences. If you're above, you have a much quicker time to first treatment than if you're below. And the right hand side looks at overall survival and a dramatic difference again at the 41 cutoff. If you're above, you have a markedly shorter survival than if you're below. And lastly, we've done a study with Adrian Weister and Claire Sun, we presented at ASH, we're publishing or sending it in. 46 patients on Abrutinib, and we obtained the serum BCMA at baseline and then followed along. And what we see here in just a day, you see dramatic drops in BCMA in these Abrutinib-treated patients. These were all responders in this case. But then if you look in patients besides the rapid decrease This decrease was associated eventually with a reduction in lymphadenopathy and a subsequent increase from the nadir level preceded the clinical progression by an average of six to eight months in this study, giving us a much earlier read on progression than we have concurrent standards to measure progression in CLL. So in CLL we've shown you that serum BCM levels are elevated They correlate with standard prognostic markers like IGHV mutational status, ZAP70. I didn't show you the data, but cytogenetics as well. They correlate with aggressive versus indolent, and they can be used to track response to treatment. The rapid turnover allows a rapid assessment of response, and I've shown you data from two independent studies that it predicts time to first treatment and overall survival, and I have five seconds left, so I'll say thank you very much.